This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. God's people have been reading and studying His Word for a very long time, but much of that work is lost to most of us because it remains untranslated from Latin and Greek. The Reformed tradition begins with a profound commitment to sola scriptura, the unique sole and final authority of God's Word for the Christian faith and the Christian life. Campigius Vitringa is one of our forefathers in the study of Scripture. He is a fellow about whom you have probably not heard, but Charles Telfer has. He was a 17th and 18th century Reformed Old Testament scholar and theologian. And recently, Charles, who is Associate Professor of Biblical Languages at Westminster Seminary, California, published Wrestling with Isaiah, the Exegetical Methodology of Campigius Vitringa, 1659-1722. This volume, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Charles, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you for having me, Scott. Who was Campigius Vitringa? And uh, tell us whether I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Is it Campigius or Campigius? What do you think? I think his mother called him Kempe, and I think his friends would call him Fitringa, but... uh, Campigius Vitringa is good for us, or Campigius, <laughs> if you prefer the classical pronunciation. Okay. This is a fellow, of course, I imagine, of whom most of the listeners have not heard. Tell us a little bit about him. And first of all, he's a senior, which implies some things. So tell us about his family and where he was born, where he grew up, and so forth. He was born in Friesland, which is the northern section of the Low Countries or the Netherlands. And he's very closely connected with the University of Franeker, which was the third most important university in the Netherlands at that time after Leiden and Utrecht. I tend to look at Franeker University a little bit like Westminster Seminary. It was not an enormous in terms of size university, but it was a very powerful influence in the reform world for uh, a long, long time. And even scholars like Isaac Newton sought it out as a place of uh, scholarship in not only in the sciences and mathematics and philosophy, but also particularly in theology. And Vitringa was the most sought after and popular lecture and theology and biblical studies in his day at the University of Franeker. We know some figures from the 17th century. Most people have heard of John Owen, and there are other figures from the 17th century. William Perkins comes to mind, and William Ames. And then in the Netherlands, the listener might have heard of Herman Witsius, and maybe if somebody's done a fair bit of reading, perhaps even Gisbertus Fuchsius not terribly well-known, not as well-known as he should be, but relatively few people have heard of Vitringa, let alone his son. So why is that? Why is Vitringa so relatively unknown? First, since you mentioned uh, Vitsius, it's my suspicion that Vitsius is the major influence on Vitringa. He was Vitringa's patron. He opened the door for Vitringa to get a position at the University of Franeker. He followed Vitsius at the University of Franeker, and then Vitsius wanted him to follow him at Utrecht when he moved on from there. That's an interesting story in itself, what happened there. So yes, I agree, Vitsius is very important in Vitringa's life. His son was not well known because he died at age 19. He published two significant theological works before his death, which is quite remarkable from our (laughs) point of view. Yeah, say that again. He was how old? He died at around 19 years of age. And uh, one of my privileges when I was doing research at the uh, Tresor, which is the regional library of Franeker, was to see a handwritten manuscript 
by Vitriga, which was a poem in Latin mourning the death of his son. It was very beautiful. And it's my speculation that the drops on the paper were teardrops. Uh, very moving to lose a promising son at such an age. And actually, he lost uh, some three children. Why did you decide to study Vitringa? I decided to study Vitringa because I read a book by Brevard Childs called The Struggle to Understand Isaiah as Christian Scripture. And that book had a whole chapter devoted to Vitringa. And in the bibliography in that chapter, there was maybe one piece that was recent. And I thought, this is amazing that this person had such a major impact in his day and yet had been almost utterly overlooked by recent scholarship. I subsequently found out that was not exactly the case, that there had been more work done on Vitringa in the 20th century, uh, particularly in the 90s. He's somewhat starting to come back into it, have some more attention. And I was surprised that Childs didn't reference that work, but whether intentionally or unintentionally, I'm not sure yet. But um, it was a virgin field. Richard Muller, speaking in a private conversation with him, said Vitringa and a number of the other exegetes of that age had been sorely understudied. And really, it was quite a matter of accessing him through the Latin. And I took that as a wonderful challenge. I'd been wanting to really delve into Latin seriously and kind of give myself an excuse for spending a few intense years with Latin. And that all came together felicitously and a chance to study Vitringa for a number of years and to make a contribution which struck up a number of people's interest. And a number of the Europeans are quite interested in this. And uh, this work on Vitringa has appeared in some other venues uh, recently, and it's been uh, received appreciatively. And I'm very grateful. It's interesting that your interest in Vitriga was stimulated by reading Childs, whom the listener may know as a major American Old Testament scholar. And it's a little unusual from my experience for a biblical scholar to have spent as much time as Childs did in working on the history of exegesis. Ordinarily, when you pick up a commentary, there might be a passing sentence or two or maybe a paragraph on the history of exegesis, but rarely is there much discussion. N.T. Wright says, I'm a New Testament scholar and I don't really know much about the history of exegesis beyond Luther and Calvin and I don't really care. And uh, that seems to be a fairly typical attitude, at least from a historian's point of view. That's how it seems to me when I look at commentaries. So it's interesting to me that Childs had such a strong historical interest, enough to write a whole chapter on Vitringa. I think this assumption that we can get back at the biblical text with scarce little concern for the history of interpretation stems fundamentally from higher critical, shall we say, liberal tendencies in biblical studies that became dominant in Europe in the 18th, 19th centuries, which included this contempt for previous study. We are the enlightened people. We bring an academic, scholarly, objective, critical eye to the study of scripture whereas our predecessors did not. And I think one of the scary things for me is that I suspect that we as 20th century, 21st century evangelicals have embraced that attitude towards the Bible implicitly without giving it much thought, that we think somehow that we don't need our forebears in the faith to help us to understand Scripture. Not that there's any one authoritative teacher of Scripture in the history of the church, whether Augustine or anyone else, but we ignore nor our forefathers' work to our own peril. And I think that the reformers certainly didn't bear that attitude. And it was typical in Vitringa's days, and we're talking into the early 18th century, to very much interact with previous scholarship back to the 
patristic period, giving very careful attention to the Latin and to the Greek fathers and medieval interpreters, very carefully engaging the best scholarship of the ages. And I think now, I'm sure now, that there's a shift in scholarship more broadly, even beyond uh, evangelical circles, to seek to reappropriate the history of Christian thinking. And Childs was ahead of his day in that sense, certainly struggling. How is it that we can connect the Testaments? This is one of the great questions in biblical studies. How do the Testaments relate to each other? And Childs wanted to see a New Testament perspective being brought to Old Testament scholarship, which of course is kind of forbidden in, shall we say, liberal Old Testament scholarship. So he led the way, and I think at the end of his life, he was very much thinking of that. And this was his last volume before he died, this book on the history of the interpretation of Isaiah. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The Enlightenment influence on biblical studies has sort of created a donut or maybe a a cinnamon swirl. I don't know. I was searching for some kind of illustration because we know something about the way the fathers read Scripture because you can read the fathers a little bit on Scripture in the Antonicene, Nicene, Post-Nicene Fathers series and in other English translations. And then we have some Reformation scholarship on Scripture. Not a lot of commentaries, but some. We have Calvin's commentaries and we have Luther's lectures on Galatians and Genesis and the Psalms and other things. But then we're into the donut again. There's a great hole in our knowledge of how people have read the scriptures. I've done a little bit of work on Olivianus' commentaries on uh, Philippians and Galatians, uh, particularly Romans. And uh, it's remarkable how few of those are really accessible to most pastors or elders or Sunday school teachers. So we really are missing something significant because there's something to be learned from the interaction of our forefathers with Scripture. It's not simply that they were older and therefore they are right, because certainly we disagree with them. I do regularly, but still we gain something. And it's hard to say exactly what that something is, isn't it? It's true. I've been encouraged by University Press's efforts in recent decades, first in their ancient Christian commentary on Holy Scripture, and then more recently in their Reformation commentary, both of which are attempts to bring insightful excerpts from the fathers and then from reform figures in a very accessible way precisely for pastors and other folk to make use of these rich quotes in the history of interpretation. But I agree, and I think there's many reasons for that, but I think it goes back to this particularly the 19th century disdain for what they called, quote-unquote, scholastic interpreters, i.e. that... Anybody who disagreed with them. <laughs> precisely. And then after Calvin, it's downhill, and then we don't have anything until Gabler and others kind of with a more enlightened approach. Maybe what we're saying as we're sort of thinking out loud here is we need people to step up and to make it possible for these things to be translated. I'm editing a series called Classic Reform Theology, and we do have a commentary coming in that series. Somebody volunteered, actually, came to us and said, hey, I would love to see this in English, and I'll make it possible for this to happen. And then there are other works in this series. Recently, uh, Johannes Coxeus' great work on covenant theology just came out in English, and... And that's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. The first ever translation of uh, Coxeus' summary on uh, covenant theology. We'll be doing an episode on that coming up later on this year. But in order for people to step up and make that possible, I guess they need to know that there is a need. So that's useful. I'm glad you mentioned Coxeus, and I'm glad you mentioned N.T. Wright. 
first, with regard to Wright, I was glad to see that Wright participated in the Society for Biblical Literature lectures on biblical theology, past, present, and future, which recently came out in a Wiffenstock book edited by Kerry Walsh and Mark Elliott. I have an essay on Vitringa in that volume, and um, I can't give the imprimatur to anti Wright's uh, comments, but at least he's starting to think about the history and participating in that discussion of the history of interpretation and its value for biblical studies. With regard to Coxeus, Coxeus is a major influence on Vitringa and one of his most important conversation partners. Vitringa places himself and his own approach to scripture shall we say, in the via media between Coxeus and Grotius, on the other hand. Grotius is very concerned with historical issues, and Vitringa reflects that intense concern with historical accuracy and a very careful methodology to deal with history and historical aspects of Scripture and their fulfillment, either in the New Testament or in other historical contexts. So he's very concerned with history, but he's also concerned with that Christological fulfillment of Scripture and a Christocentric approach to Isaiah and to the whole of Scripture, which Coxeus represents. He's reacting to some of what he would consider the maybe the typological or allegorical excesses of Coxeus at some points. Uh, certainly, he's reacting against Coxeus's zeal to see the fulfillment of Scripture in later church history events, modern <laughs> modern European historical events. So it gets a little creative, let's say, at some points, seeing the fulfillment of this or that scripture in the Peace of Augsburg or something like that. Anyway, Coxeus is a major conversation partner for Vitringa, and uh, we could say that uh, Vitringa is broadly in the Coxean tradition, although he's reacting against some of its excesses. So tell us about the influence of Vitringa. How did his work reverberate in his own time and then afterward? Vitringa's influence is difficult to pinpoint. These are broad and difficult questions. There are some scholars that have traced his influence, on the one hand, through the pietists on into German idealism and Lessing and a number of other major figures. And there are others that have traced his influence towards the emerging historical critical methodologies. Perhaps we could say that he was particularly well-loved by Orthodox, Bible-believing, Protestant pastors, readers, interpreters. And he had a huge influence in Germany, especially amongst what we would call pietistic folk. And he was very well-respected across the board in Roman Catholic circles and in more radical circles, those that had a more critical approach to scripture. Jean Leclerc, for example, reviewed his material very positively, and he was spoken of with great appreciation by Gesenius and even in the 19th century by Dalich. And the Princeton theologians had his major works at Princeton Seminary and referred to him right from Alexander on through the Hodges, and he was very well appreciated, and um, his work was mined extensively by the Princeton folk, on, not only on Isaiah, but on many other questions. So, do you think it's fair to say that it's really only in the last century that we've lost track of Vitnika, that up to probably the turn of the 20th century, most of our confessional reformed folk had some awareness, and some of them were actually even reading Vitnika? Yes, I think that's fair to say, that at the very end of the 19th century and up through the 70s and 80s, he was largely neglected. I think that's typical of that whole 
era of post-Reformation biblical interpreters, that era was eight-balled as scholastic, as dry, as academic, as having very little creative influence and importance in the broader realm of biblical studies. And I think that Vitringa, both for his scholarship, which was leading edge for his day, just an amazing scholar, a devoted scholar of the languages and of the historical records of the time. He had an amazing mastery of all the resources available at the time and was a master of all the languages that had been explored at that time. Of course, he didn't have access to the languages and the immense riches of ancient Near Eastern documents that we've had access to in the last three centuries, particularly caches of material unearthed by archaeological expeditions throughout the Middle East in the last 150 years particularly. But great scholar on the one hand and very thoughtful, sober theologian seeking to bring the analogy of scripture and the centrality of Christ to his thinking about Isaiah and all of his work in biblical studies, which was quite formidable. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Charles Telfer, Associate Professor of Biblical Languages at Westminster Seminary, California, about his new book, Wrestling with Isaiah, the Exegetical Methodology of Campigius Vitringa. Charles, you call his commentary on Isaiah his greatest work. So tell us a little bit about this commentary. This work was published in two volumes, in 1710 and 1720, and if you translated it into English in standard academic size, it would probably run about 5,000 pages. It's an amazingly thorough work on Isaiah and brings more historical and linguistic resources to bear on the question of interpreting Isaiah than anything previous. It also brings to bear a sharp pastoral interest that he is concerned to expound scripture for the edification of the church. And he's a churchman first and foremost, and is very concerned to help pastors and other teachers to expound the scriptures as living water for the flock of God. And there's a moving pastoral quality to the work that's very winsome and very helpful. He moves very easily from text to doctrine, and this makes the work particularly helpful. So both those interested in the scholarship, the linguistic or historical scholarship, those interested in 
this book as a summary of the interpretation of the book up to that point. It's a virtually a history of interpretation in and of itself. I only was able to analyze his work. I had a very close reading of some six chapters of that work. And yet, even in those brief six chapters, he is interacting with over 200 different scholarly sources. So he's very engaged with the rabbinic sources, medieval Jewish commentators, etc., classical perspectives. It's an amazing work that was very well appreciated for about 150 years after its uh, publication and actually dominated the field of Isianic studies for about 100 years after its publication. How did he go about interpreting scripture? We call the work of interpreting scripture hermeneutics or the approach that one uses. So what sort of hermeneutic did he employ? For example, and I'm thinking about some of the things you were saying in the book about how he related the figurative sense or senses to the literal sense. Walk us through that a little bit. Vitringa was self-conscious about his own methodology more than many of his predecessors and many of his successors. And it's a good model for us. We should be very conscientious about how we're approaching scripture. He had a list of canones hermeneuticos, kind of interpretive rules that guided him in his work. And this book is showing how Basically, he keeps his own counsel. He's consistent with his own methodology. Whether you agree with every point or not is not the question, although many of them are extraordinarily helpful. But he sets out principles and then he interprets in accordance with those principles. In my own attempt to break those down, it seemed to me logical that the main issue is contextuality. He's sharply contextual in his interpretation at every level. And then I break it down in terms of what I would call a bipartite approach to interpretation. First, literal, and then what he would call spiritual, or he used many different other words for this, some of which we may be comfortable with, some which we may not, figurative or prophetic or spiritual or mystical or analogical. He used a number of words to express this second, what we'll call a broader or second level of interpretation. So he's very concerned to understand every element of biblical interpretation in its natural context. So he looks at words in their natural context locally, and then in terms of Isaiah as a whole, and then the prophetic corpus, and then the Old Testament as a whole, and then scripture as a whole. He looks at phrases or expressions, sentences, grammatical features, syntactical features. He examines these things within concentric circles. How is it most natural to read and interpret these pieces of a text. Same thing with larger literary features, rhetorical features and style. It's very humbling to just even have a list. I made a list of the various literary tropes and figures that he sees in the text. And I think it makes at least me come away saying, you know, we have lost our classical heritage of literary and grammatical and rhetorical criticism. They had words to talk about the way writers do things that we've simply forgotten about. We may talk about metaphor, we may talk about analogy, various things, but they had very detailed ways of talking about how authors and speakers do their work that we would do well to remember. So we've lost categories of ways of analyzing. When you say criticism, you mean analysis. You don't mean saying that something is right or wrong. You're saying that he had tools in his toolbox. He had categories by which he could look at Isaiah, for example, and say, well, this is this kind of speech, and this is a kind of figurative speech, but here's what kind of figurative speech it is. That's what you're saying. 
For example, Quintilian has a book on rhetoric and on grammar that was evidently standard for authors in Vitringa's day, and it has tens and tens of different approaches to texts, which are exactly, as you said, tools in the toolbox that enable us to analyze texts. And it makes us feel like we're rhetorical and interpretative beginners when we read uh, things like that. Same with history. He's studying the history of the texts. There's a section on the nations, for example, and the judgments against the nations in Isaiah, where he is bringing to bear a very broad and in-depth reading on those nations in his interpretation of those texts. And then he's trying to see the literal reading of the text and the detailed reading of the text in context. And then he does the same thing with a spiritual reading of the text. So what are the analogies? What are the natural connections? What are the parallels of subject? of type, anti-type, of promise, fulfillment? What are the connections to the broader biblical story, we would say, redemptive historical narrative or the grand narrative of scripture? What are those connections? And how does this text point toward Christ and his kingdom? And he, again, trying to be very contextual, very controlled and careful in making those broader, particularly New Testament connections. And he uses the New Testament as his paradigm of biblical interpretation, which would have been very controversial for 19th century critical scholars and Old Testament scholars. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And it's still controversial today, right? In some circles, we have dispensational friends who would say to us, well, you know, that's the wrong way to read scripture. And so we're still having that dialogue. In fact, when you say that he recognized either figurative senses or a spiritual sense to the text, of course, that's going to send off alarms in dispensational circles too, right? So this text would be, in that respect, perhaps somewhat challenging even in our own day, not only for German liberals, but also for certain kinds of American evangelicals too. I think you're right. I think classic texts such as the end of Isaiah 52 and 53, hopefully all Christians would agree that that's a clear pointing to Christ. But if we see that in a text like that, why would we doubt that the other connections are there in other texts in Isaiah? Not that those texts were ever uncontroversial. For example, Grotius is arguing that Jeremiah and not our Lord Jesus was envisioned in that text. And this disturbs Vitringa very, very much. And it says <laughs> that shame, not reason, drives men to such absurdities. And he takes uh, Grotius to task on that point. But of course, that's That's the great debate between the Jewish interpreters uh, across the centuries and the Christian interpreters. Does the scripture point to our Lord? And it's the same question that the Ethiopian eunuch was asking of Philip and that Philip answered on his discussion with him on the Gaza road. So from the Christian point of view, the answer to that question is not speculative, right? We have a divinely inspired answer. And we want to say with Vitringa that we have a divinely inspired way of reading the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament broadly, so that this isn't something that we've invented or that Vitringa was making up and imposing on the scriptures. He's actually paying attention to the way that Paul and the uh, gospel writers and Peter and John, right, uh, Hebrews, New Testament authors, uh, looked at not only what conclusions they drew in particular cases, but the method they used to reach their conclusions. Absolutely. And Vitriga sees himself as part of the grand Christian tradition of reading the scriptures with an eye to Christ. He saw that in the medieval interpreters and the reformers, in the patristic interpreters and the New Testament writers themselves. Absolutely. So here you've completed this large, detailed academic study of Compegius Vitringa from the 17th and early 18th centuries. 
And it's not just, though, I, I think I hear in your voice, not just an academic study that this work also had an effect on you personally. Help us understand what it's like to sort of get inside the mind and to some degree the heart of a fellow believer from centuries before who is working through Scripture. Well, that's a vast question. I, I felt very privileged to be able to study this man's life and work and to continue to study this man's life and work. Uh, the first thing that I worked on was a translation of a 1751 biography of Wittringa, which is Lebenslauf. His German translator put together a very extensive and detailed and a very positive biography of Wittringa, which was quite moving, and I translated that into English. It was part of the dissertation, not part of this Wrestling with Isaiah volume, and I hope to have this included as an appendix in the next piece on Wittringa that I hope to see published, which is a translation of his work on the spiritual life. He wrote a work that was so moving on the spiritual life that another of his early biographers said that it was a work that was worthy to be carried around in our hands, our hearts, and our very bones on the work of God and the human heart in bringing us to a relationship to Christ by faith and how God continues to sanctify us and ultimately the conclusion of the spiritual life being in glorification. There were so many beautiful passages in that work as I read through it that I said, this has got to come out in English. So hopefully uh, Reformation Heritage Books has agreed to uh, to bring that out to publish that translation, which I hope will be finished in uh, the spring of next year. But here is a man who is exemplary in his scholarship and quite an example to me and in his walk with God. He lost his hearing in his 50s and perhaps even earlier than that, I don't know exactly when, but he would continue to come to church even though he didn't get a single thing out of it. And he did it because he wanted to set a good example for those around him. And as the preacher preached, he would spend time meditating on the text. He would have someone write it down and then he would meditate reverently on that text. That is commitment to the due use of ordinary means, right? Indeed. He's so committed to public worship and the centrality of that in the Christian life that even though he couldn't hear, I remember reading that in your book and being very struck by that. What a profound commitment to being in the midst of God's people, right? On the Lord's Day. So this is a guy who believed in the Lord's Day. He believed in what we call the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, the use of discipline. And he worked that out by showing up every Lord's Day twice, right? Morning and evening to be with God's people, even when he could not hear what the preacher was saying. So he's reading scripture. And of course, he could come forward for communion, which is what he would have done in those days and, and receive communion, which would have been edifying, but still not hearing the forms, not hearing the sermon. But that's a remarkable thing. It is. He brought that same sense of devotion and humility to the public debates. There were debating and public discourse and dissertation was an important part of academic life in those days where students would prepare debates under the supervision of professors and then they would debate those with other professors or with other people. And when he was speaking, he would beg his hearers to, quote, have patience with him in his infirmity. And he would have to have someone else write down his opponent's opinions and then he would respond to those. A very humble approach. He used a hearing horn at the time and it was a hard go. <laughs> Which was high tech at the time. Indeed. But. Another thing was his concern for the practical life of the churches. So two of his final books were 
One was with regard to preaching. He felt that preaching in his day was weak, and he wrote a book on preaching and public prayer, how to make the public prayers and the preaching more edifying for the people. And he wrote another book on the use of assemblies. So he wrote a book on synods and the importance, uh, the limits of power and the importance of cooperation between congregations in larger church assemblies. It showed that he had a heart for the churches right to his dying day. And also an interest in the history of Christian worship. One of his major works, part of which has been translated into English, is a study on the synagogue and relating the synagogue to early Christian worship. Did you have a chance to take a look at that at all? I did. There's only two pieces of his that had been brought into English. One was this work on the synagogue. It actually is a three-volume book that's been boiled down into a brief one-volume piece in English. It's highly edited. It's not a translation. It's really a summary. And Vitringa had a lengthy multi-volume exchange and debate with Lightfoot, the English writer. And this De Synagoga is the culmination of that. A lot of scholarship went into that. That work was well appreciated into the 19th century. Again, bringing those early rabbinic studies and historical studies to this question of what's the relationship of the church and its leadership and its offices to those of the synagogue. The effect of which was historically to say that the model for the early church was not the temple, which would have been the Roman paradigm, but the model for the early church was the synagogue. So that to the degree we know what was taking place in the synagogue in, the say, the first century, we have a reasonably good idea of what was taking place in uh, Christian worship in the first century. And then, of course, traditionally, Christians have drawn inferences from that about how worship ought to be conducted and what is done and what is not done, which would have been particularly interesting in the context of the late 17th and early 18th century, and particularly in the early 18th century, because just at that time, significant changes are beginning to take place, not only in Roman Catholic worship, but particularly in Reformed worship in the 18th century, both in Europe and in the New World, too, in what were then the American colonies. Absolutely. And part of the debate was Vitringa arguing for, shall we say, a more Presbyterian view of the offices and uh, Lightfoot arguing for a more Episcopalian view. And for the kinds of things that are done in worship and why and how. Well, Charles, thank you very much for this. This is surprisingly, in a way, for an academic work, a very edifying piece of work on a fellow whom we need to know and glad that you have brought him to our attention. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about him. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.